So we're going to begin today by reading some scripture together. And so I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel uh, verse tw- uh, chapter 21. We're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 21. If you're using a pew Bible, it is on page 273. read the first 15 verses. Um, So if you'll follow along with me. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul and his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rispah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, this daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rispah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rispah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done. David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them that day. And he brought, them from, he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded, And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. All right, now, I want you to turn a few pages and jump ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Now I want to read together again. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with them, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I might know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still sees it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror, from the cities that's in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jezer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went to Sidon and, from, and came to the fortress of Tyr, to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. 
And when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be, shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. <coughs> then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And David came that day, and Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to the Lord, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer the burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David brought, David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Now, we just read two stories in two different places in the book of Samuel. And you're probably wondering, why did we just leap ahead to the very end of the story? I want to talk for a moment about the structure of the book of Samuel. We have falsely divided the book of Samuel into two books. So, for our purposes today, I'm going to refer to them as they were originally sent to the people of Israel. As one single book. And that book has three major sections. All right? So this is the structure of Samuel. David, uh, so Samuel is uh, divided in three parts. The first part, you can say, is from 1 Samuel 1 until 2 Samuel 10. And for our purposes, we're going to just refer to this section. The meaning of this section is to teach the people of Israel that David is like the coming king. Right? And then there's a real shift in the narrative direction. And that happens in 2 Samuel 11. And from 2 Samuel 11 to 2 Samuel 20, the purpose of the story is to teach Israel that David is not the coming king. So we have here this, this extended portrait of David as someone who is like the king that Israel should set their hope in. And, and then we have this extended portrait of David who is not like the king and who is not the king that Israel should set their hope in. And so you're left at the end of this second section with this felt tension. 
What's interesting about this story is that the story we, we read last week, the story that ended in the wise woman's appeal to stop the bloodshed in Israel, that's actually the last chronological account of David's reign in the book of Samuel. So we get from, from the beginning of the book of Samuel all the way to 2 Samuel 20, we get this portrait of David's ascension and his reign as king, and it stops in this relatively hopeless moment. And then there's another shift, and a pretty significant shift, because we start to see stories and songs that are not in chronological order. So the question is, why? I think the answer to the uh, phenomenon of the last four chapters in the book of uh, Samuel is that this is an epilogue. This is a final uh, final statement to walk away from the story of David with that would teach the people of Israel the meaning of David's entire kingdom, right? This epilogue is teaching the people of Israel to trace David's shadow, to trace the particulars of David's shadow and what aspects of David's shadow should they trace to the coming king, right? They're left with this tension. Well, he's like the coming king, but he's not clearly not the coming king. So So what do I need to look out for? And the last four chapters of the book of Samuel are giving you the particular aspects of David's life that you need to look out for. As you're scanning the horizon, as you're you're longing for this promised king, the son of David, that's been been promised from the beginning. As you're scanning that horizon, you're supposed to look for particular characteristics. And the last chapters of Samuel give you those characteristics. Now, I also want to pivot for a moment and talk about chiasm or chiastic structure. We've talked about this a handful of times uh, since I started this series, which, by the way, three years ago we started this series, and we only have three sermons left. And I don't know how to feel about that, guys. So if I come in, three, uh, in, the, in, in the third sermon, if I come and I just weep the whole time, you know why, right? Um, So anyways, we've talked about chiasm several times. The Greek letter for chi is an X, right? All right, keep that in mind. Uh, Because chiasm is a tool that writers, especially biblical writers, use to teach readers the meaning of a series of stories, okay? It's a structure. It's It's a structure that allows readers to follow the logic of the story and to be able to very clearly and very specifically outline what am I supposed to take away from this? And the epilogue of Samuel is a chiasm. A series of stories that point, X marks the spot, right? Point to one specific takeaway, all right? And we're going to, for the next three sermons in this series, we're going to follow the shape of the chiasm and we're going to conclude where the author of Samuel wants us to conclude. But in order to do that, we're going to have to uh, jump back and forth to the various sides of the X, right? Let me show you. This is, uh, this is the, um, the chiasm structure in like most broad terms. Can we go to the next slide? Um, we have these parallel ideas, right? And this is how a chiasm works in every single literary scenario that you're going to encounter. It happens a lot in the Bible, but it also happens all over the world of literature. You have these parallel ideas. Say, idea A, and then maybe six, eight chapters, maybe four, five hundred pages later, you get the same idea repeated. And if you're reading carefully, you start to think, wait, this reminds me of this thing. Right? Well, right next to that idea is idea B, and you get a little bit closer down towards the X marks the spot moment. And idea B is compelling and interesting, but you don't realize how compelling and interesting until you come across that idea four or five chapters, four or five hundred pages later. Right? And then right smack in the middle, if you're following this trajectory, you're saying, well, this is like this, and this is like this. Right smack in the middle, are you going to, you're going to have two ideas that are very close to one another. Okay? And, and as you get closer to the center of this chiasm, as you get closer to the X marks the spot, you start to see what the author has been doing this entire time. It's really magical. And if you see it, and if you follow the logic of the author, it relieves so much tension in the narrative because all your answers are there. X marks the spot. Got it? Now, let me show you what this looks like in, uh, 
in Samuel. Um, the book of Samuel ends in a chiastic structure that resolves the tension between parts one and part two. We already dealt with that. So let's go to the next slide. The answer to the question, what is the meaning of Samuel? The resolution to the tension between parts one and parts two is this single statement. Look forward to the better David. And what does that mean to look forward to the better David? Let's go to this next slide. The better David is like this. He's he's the better priest. He's the better king. And he's the better prophet. We just flip forward to that next slide. It's much easier to see this uh, visibly. There you go. Got that? So we've got these parallel ideas in the very end of Samuel. Chapters 21 and 24 are explaining to you how the the coming son of David is like David in that he's the king priest of Israel. Okay, And right directly preceding uh, chapter 21. And just before chapter 24, we get this... This picture of David, the mighty king, who's the leader of the mighty redeemed, right? He's the better king. He leads a redeemed people, right? And then at the very center of this chiasm, we get the the portrait of David as the great prophet, the great leader of the praises of, of Israel and the praises of God's people, right? And I won't yet tell you where the X points, because where the X points is really the magic of the very last sermon, and you have to wait out for that. But what we're going to do today is we're going to deal with this first level of the chiasm. Uh, David is the king priest of Israel, but only as a shadow. But his shadow points forward to the better priest, okay? You guys follow me? Okay. Now, the better David is the royal priest who atones for the, sinner, for the sins of Israel. The better David is the true king who will lead the mighty redeemed. And the better David is the royal prophet who rallies his people to praise. Okay, now, uh, let's look forward uh, to the king priest. All right, this, the, the two stories we just read look forward to the king priest. The better David who is the royal priest who atones for the sins of Israel. All right, now... These two stories um, are quite complex. And if you read them as standalone narratives, you will walk away with a lot of questions. I'm going to try and relieve some of those questions today, but not at the expense of getting to the point. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? So there's, you can get in, in the weeds here, because there's a whole lot of, of marginal questions. I'm going to dodge some of those marginal questions because they're going to distract from the point. However, I'm going to try and get to as many of those questions as you might have. And, um, and then if I don't get to something that you're really interested in, you can send me a message later and complain. <laughs> um, okay, so both of these stories that we just read share a, a common context, right? The context of both these stories is very similar. And I want to... Um, can we jump ahead several slides, please, uh, to uh, the problem Okay, the context, I think, of both of these stories can be summarized with these three points. We've got a covenant that's been broken, right? We've got a dynasty that has fallen, and and the people, because of this broken covenant and because of this fallen dynasty, the people are facing the wrath of God. All right, now let's get into the particulars here. Let's go to the next slide. A covenant broken. Uh, In the first... In the first um, passage we read, chapter 21, we saw that the text actually goes out of its way to explain why this Gibeonite thing was an issue. All right. So if you flip back to chapter 21, you'll read. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although although the people had of Israel had sworn to spare them. All right. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Now, one of the commentaries that I've been reading adds a line here that says, Saul was zealous for the people of God, but he wasn't zealous for the kingdom of God. And I think that's profound. 
Saul, the king, could be simultaneously zealous for the people of God and undermining their joy and their peace by violating the covenant. And that's what happened here. Tracking with me? Now, this one line is not enough for me, I I don't think, to to grasp the full nature of the Gibeonite situation. Um, If you want to read the full story, Joshua 9 will explain the entire account of the Gibeonites and their relationship with the people of Israel. What you need to know right now is that as the people of Israel were crossing over into the promised land, led by Joshua, they're about to, to, to take the, the promised land uh, to, for the people of Israel. And they're, they're casting out the, the wicked peoples of the land, right? And, and God makes very clear that they know one thing. You will never, you ought never, you should never make covenants with these people. Because these people will become a snare to you. Does it make sense? They're saying, look, if you make oaths with these people, if you swear that they'll, they can stick around, you don't want to kill these people, they're particularly friendly maybe, um, you do that and, and their idolatry will become a snare to you and you will spiral into their idolatry. And what's hap- what happens later is that they do make covenants and, and then we see that they do spiral. And then we see that in the end of the Old Testament, we see the people of Israel are in a worse place than the native land, uh, the, than the people uh, who lived in Canaan prior to them. So, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, as the people of Israel, led by Joshua, were, were crossing over the promised land, and they've, they've now defeated Jericho, they've now defeated Ai, and they're just... The Lord is working miraculously and the Lord's power is clearly evident and the people are being warned not to stray from the covenant. All of a sudden, this people shows up, right? And they've dressed in really ratty clothes and all of their stuff is ripped and torn. And guess what they say? They say, we're not, we're not a part of this people. We're not from here. We're visitors. You see, we, our clothes are torn up. Our Our wineskins are torn apart. We're clearly not from here, so don't kill us. We're from somewhere else. And because we're from somewhere else and we recognize you're just great power, we're willing to serve you, people of Israel, if you spare our lives and allow you to live alongside of us. Now, Joshua's narrative makes a point to say they did not consult God about this. They just said, well, we're, we're told to... To, to clear the land, but these people aren't of the land, and this is pretty straightforward. Let's just go ahead and make an oath. Right? And all of a sudden, the people of Israel have, have violated the covenant of their God by creating a covenant with the people of the land. And this is where it gets a little tricky. God, God's covenant with the people demands that they honor covenants with other people. Right? Numbers 9. God's covenant with the people says you don't make oaths that you don't intend on fulfilling. We don't lie. We don't don't bear false witness. We don't promise things that we're not going to deliver on. So now the people are in a pretty precarious position because they've made a covenant that violates the covenant, but if they violate that covenant, they further violate the covenant. Does that make sense? So from this point forward in the people of Israel's history, the Gibeonites live as their slaves. And we know because we know what the law said, that their presence is going to be a snare to the people of Israel. But it would be wrath for them to violate their oath to the people, uh, uh, to the Gibeonites. So they're kind of stuck. Now Saul has this bright idea. Well, I don't want to deal with this covenant we made anymore. It's maybe going to be a snare to the people of Israel. And this is one of the few uh, uh, people native to Canaan that are still sort of a part of our, of our uh, promised land. So I'm just going to kill them. Right? Saul makes a cost-benefit analysis and says, you know what, it's better to violate the covenant of God and risk, uh, risk God's wrath than to have this inconsistency here. And Saul murders the Gibeonites. Now years later, the people of Israel are suffering from the wrath of God. The wrath is poured out on the people of Israel because of this series of decisions. They are such covenant breakers that they've broken series of covenants. They're, it's like the inception of covenant breakers. They're just level upon level of covenant breakers and it's just compounding the problem. All right. 
Well, now the wrath of God is, is, is fallen on the people of Israel in the form of a plague. Okay? Now, pause there. Fast forward to chapter 24. In the same way, a covenant has been violated. Now, it's not as explicit in chapter 21. How do I know that a covenant has been violated among the people of God in chapter 24? I know that because in Deuteronomy 28, we know that the only reason that God engages his people in wrath is when they're systematically breaking the covenant or particularly breaking the covenant. Any sort of covenant breaking initiates the wrath of God. Now, again, we're in a little bit of the weeds here, but we have this kind of interesting scenario where the anger of the Lord, in this first verse of chapter 24, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. Now this passage, guys, if you read anti-theists, and if you read uh, enemies of the faith, this passage is cited all the time. Because the same story is retold in Chronicles, and it says that David, or that Satan incited David to do a census. Well, which is it? Did God incite David to do a census, or did Satan incite David to do a census? That's only a problem if you haven't read Job. Right? That's only a problem if you haven't read Job. How does Job start? You remember? Satan just happens to appear before the hosts. And God says, what? God says, what? Have you considered my servant Job? Right? And Satan, who is as all things are, subservient to the sovereignty of God, Satan goes after Job. Pours out wickedness on Job, right? Plague and murder. Destruction. Well, which was it? Was it God or Satan? Right? The answer, that God is sovereign over all things and that God, God's purposes will prevail resolves the tension between 2 Samuel and Chronicles. And we're probably going to circle back on this in 45 years when we eventually get to Chronicles. <laughs> so in either case, we have God's wrath on display in both situations because the people are covenant breakers. Now, if you go one level further into... Let's go back one side, please. Uh, If you go one level further, you see both narratives feature a fallen dynasty. Why did the people of Israel ask for a king? You remember? This guy's going to fix all our problems, right? Right? Samuel's like, this is a bad idea. And the people of Israel are like, no. Look at the other nations. We need a king. He's going to relieve our felt pressure. He's going to lead us into battle. He's going to take care of us. Right? Samuel's like, don't do it. Don't do it. People of Israel are like, just, you know, you're getting old, Samuel. You're a little irrelevant. Um, why don't you just sit back in the corner and we'll just, you know, go tell God to give us a king. Right? The people of Israel look to the king as the resolution of their problems. But in both stories, we find out explicitly that the king is representing the people, but not in a good way, right? The king is representing the people and leading them into iniquity, right? Saul himself was the architect of the destruction of the Gibeonites. David himself was the architect of this wicked census so he could boast before the people. Look at my mighty armies, right? In both cases, the dynasties of Israel fail the people of God. All right, next slide, please. And lastly, because of the people's covenant breaking and because of the failure of these dynasties, the wrath of God is being poured out on Israel. In the first case, a famine for three years. In the last case, a plague for three days. I want to read you something from Deuteronomy 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground. 
And the increase of your herds and the young of your flock, cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses when, when you refuse to obey God and be careful to do his commandments. The Lord will make pestilence stick to you. How do I know that all of these things are related? How do I know that this is the wrath of God? Because what happens when the people violate covenants? God's wrath is poured out. It's in the terms. Look at the terms of the covenant, right? All right. So we have in both of these stories a shared context, right? The people have, um, the people have violated the covenant. Their dynasties have failed them, and they face the wrath of God. And guys, this is the context of the Old Testament, right? This is not a unique moment in Israel's history. In fact, part of the reason that the, that the final chapters of Samuel are structured this way is because the people of Israel who are reading these stories see themselves in these stories, right? You've got generation after generation of exiled Israelites, right? And what are they saying? That's us. We violated the covenant too. Our dynasties failed us too. We face the wrath of God right now. Our, our situation is the bad part of Deuteronomy 28, right? The curses have befallen them because they have earned the wrath of God by breaking the covenant. Now, that's not where the story stops, praise God. Both, Both of these stories feature the same solution. And that solution is the salvation of the king priest. The salvation of the king priest. We see this unfold on three levels. We see intercession by the king priest in both stories. We see atonement by the king priest in both stories. And we see salvation from the wrath of God because of the work of the king priest in both stories. So let's take it in part. Uh, skip skip two, two ahead on the slides. All right, first part. Intercession by the king priest. I'm getting this from chapter 21, verse 1. David sought... The face of the Lord. Having beheld the wrath of God. Realizing God's encountering His people according to Deuteronomy 28, the second half and not the first half. David sees this and he begins to intercede. He says, David sought the face of the Lord. Likewise, in chapter 4, 23 verse 14, we have multiple pictures of David seeking God. He says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for His mercy is great. Right? We have him interacting with the prophets of God. We have him seeking God in prayer and falling down in confession. Right? The, the intercession of the king priest is highlighted in this story, but it doesn't stop there. Keep going. We see atonement by the king priest. Now David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And you probably have questions here. Because the atonement... When the people violated the Gibeonite covenant, the atonement was in the sacrifice of sons. Now, if you've been paying attention to the law, we don't do that. We don't sacrifice sons. That's not how we relate to God. In fact, God strictly forbids it. So what's, this, what's, this, what's happening here? Well, the covenant that is explicitly broken in chapter 20 is a co- in 21 is a covenant with Gibeonites, not a covenant with God. Right? So God is honoring that covenant and He's honoring His own covenant, which says, don't break any oaths, right? But the Gibeonites are the offended party. And so David makes atonement by approaching the offended party and asking, how can we make this right? What will restore our covenant together? Okay? And then in chapter 24, you've got a violation of God's covenant. And so David, as the king priest, Builds an altar to the Lord and offers burnt offerings and peace offerings. Okay? So in both cases, you have the intercession of the king priest, which leads him to atonement, to the work of atonement by the king priest. And then at the very end of both stories, we have this picture of salvation. In chapter 1, they did all the things that the king commanded, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. 
And then in chapter 4, so the Lord responded to the plea for the land. That's not a mistake. That's not a mistake in repetition. You're supposed to make this connection. The atoning work of the king priest was offered up and the Lord responded to the plea for the land. And the plague was averted from Israel. Okay. Now, I want to make explicit something that I've said now several times. When the people of Israel are reading this story, they saw themselves in this story. Every generation after the the final jot and tittle of Samuel was, was completed and it was distributed to God's people and read to God's people, every generation is saying, I see that wrath. I recognize that I've been breaking the covenant. Every generation of the people of Israel is saying, the kings are failing us, right? And they're seeing themselves in this story because they too were covenant violators. And they too had vivid memories of the fallen kings of Israel. And they too were daily facing the wrath of God. And what's beautiful about these stories and what's magnificent about these stories being at the very end of the book of Samuel is that these stories are broadcasting in chorus. Hope is coming. Forever atonement is coming. Not temporary atonement. Forever atonement is coming. You will be saved from the wrath of God by the priest king of Israel. That's the point of these stories. You're flipping as an Israelite. You're flipping through the story of David and you're thinking, okay, I get that he's somehow like the coming king. And I I get that he's not the coming king. So what am I supposed to look out for? And this is a sweet demonstration of mercy as God looks to his people and he says, yes, you have broken the covenant but I'm sending a king priest. And that king priest will make atonement for you. And you and I will be reconciled forever, Israel. Amen? That's what these passages mean. There is hope in the atoning work of the king priest to come. So, what does this say about the Bible? I don't think I talk about this very much, and I think that's probably a problem. What does this say about the Bible? I think, I propose, and I'm not alone, many, many, many people see the Christ direction of the final chapters of Samuel. I'm not, this is not my idea. I probably should make a point. Very, very little of what I say is my idea. If ever I say something that's just my idea, pull me aside. Pray for me. Ask me to repent. This is a messianic direction here. This is a Christ-exalting direction here. You're supposed to see the Christ exemplifying the Christian hope of these passages. What does that tell us about the Old Testament? Could it be true that when Jesus pointed at the whole of the Scriptures and said, they were all about me, that He wasn't exaggerating? The message of the Old Testament is the message of the New Testament. There's so much bad scholarship that says, well, there's 15 different sources and we've got to get really critical about what's being received here and all we can see here is an injection from this community that doesn't like these verses. Guys, it's all bogus. It's all bogus. It's one of the least uh, nuanced strategies of the enemy to try and convince you that your scriptures aren't pointing in one direction. And they are. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, Christ is King is the message. And your calling, when you open up the Scriptures, your calling is to go and see Him for who He is. And to reflect on His character. And to reflect on His work. And to reflect on His compassion and mercy and grace. And to praise Him forevermore. You're practicing now. It's all we're going to do later. Amen? The Old Testament is explicitly Christian. Don't listen to anybody who tells you otherwise. Also, and I love this, Old Testament theology is New Testament theology. I want you to open back up to uh, 2 Samuel 24. I used to be in uh, uh, Bible drill when I was a kid. I was really fast at finding the books. But I've been using um, a digital Bible for like a good 10 years now. My, uh, my time has just out the window. Okay, 
2 Samuel 24. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel of the Lord stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working, it's enough, now stay your hands. Simultaneously, the Lord's working in the heart of David prayers. Right? Who sent David to make atonement for the people of Israel? Who? God did. God, angry because of covenant violating, pouring out His wrath, says, I so love the world. And I'm going to send my only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in Him, right? Like this dynamic, the the New Testament dynamic of the Lord initiating the redemption of His people by sending a king to offer atonement. That's not unique to the New Testament. That's Old Testament theology. Amen? It's all the same. This is the most beautiful book ever written. And I love books. This is the best one. And it's the best because it was written over thousands of years and it's always pointing in the same direction. Amen? Ignore the people who say, well, you know, we know that the theology of Genesis is is somewhat distinct from the theology of Joshua, which is somewhat distinct from the theology of Deuteronomy. That's bogus. Bogus. We're just not reading well. Amen? Okay. So I think that's what that means about the Bible. What does this mean for you? I think it means a lot of things. Nobody in these stories is not a covenant breaker. There's not one person mentioned in these stories that's not a covenant breaker. And as a reader of God's word, written for God's people, it's your responsibility to see yourself as a covenant breaker. Relative morality is an enemy of the gospel. You may be 50 times better than your neighbor. You may give 20 times more than your peers. You may wake up at 4 and pray and read. And you may, you may offer yourself up to caring for orphans and widows all day long. But you have violated the covenant of God. And except for the work of Christ, you are under His wrath. You have violated the covenant. Just, guys, it's a hard pill to swallow, but you're not going to make sense of the Scriptures without it. We have all violated the covenant. Now, that's good news on a couple different levels because there's a way for us and because we're all in the same boat. When we call one another to repentance, it's not an outsider shouting in, sinner, you need to get out of there. Right? That's not how it works. Uh, what's the... Oh, gosh, I'm going to butcher it. There's a famous... Um, a famous quote that says, um, Christianity isn't a man at a soup kitchen offering a bowl of soup to a homeless person. Christianity is a homeless person telling another homeless person there's a bowl of soup down the way. Amen? You're a covenant breaker. If you don't believe me... Um, Read Romans 1, right? Just read Romans 1. It's not a a huge chapter. Just read it. Okay. Second, recognize all the fallen kings who couldn't save you. We, don't we, we look to a whole lot of kings to rescue us. Now, very, very rarely will I say this thing or person is my hope for redemption, right? Like, a lot of people will dismiss claims like this because they say, I don't, I don't, like, I don't, like, believe that if I do this, I'll go to heaven. Like, this is just a thing in my life. We have to dig a little deeper. There are a lot of things that promise hope a lot of things that promise security, a lot of things that promise a resolution to all of your felt concerns, and they are failures. 
of kings. Those dynasties have fallen, and you've got to get it, right? It's an election year, guys. I promise. Donald Trump's message and Joe Biden's message will be distinct on many levels, but deep down it'll be kind of the same. What are they going to be saying? I am the answer to all your hopes and dreams. All that you've been longing for. Restored America. Beautiful. Everybody being happy. All of our financial concerns being resolved. It's in me. No, it's not. It's not. I don't care how you vote. It's not. Like, and that's fine. You've got to make a decision there, and you've got to go with the best candidate that you feel is the right next step for our nation. But even our nation is a fallen king. We're surrounded by promises. Your stockbroker, man. Your stockbroker is making promises. You know, you do this, do this, do this, and it'll bolster your... Sorry, Andrew. I love you, Andrew. This is not about... You could be a Christian stockbroker. Um, your stockbroker is promising wealth, right, on some level or another, saying, if you do this, this, and this, your, your, uh, your, 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 your bank account will start increasing by zeros, not on the right side, not the wrong side. Um, wealth is a foolish and fallen king. You have been promised relief on so many different directions. All of these kings have failed you. You just see them like that. And even as you're going through your daily life, right? Even as you're just like, this happened to me all the time. Like, oh, that was a great conversation. Maybe this client will come on board. Like, you should remind yourself, oh, I just got this great contract. Hey, my boss is talking about a promotion. You should remind yourself, that's convenient and nice, but this is not a king that I need to put my hope in. Am I right? Recognize that the kings that promise rescue are failures. There's only one king that can rescue us from our dilemma. Okay. Third, remember that the true priest king has made atonement for you. Remember that the true priest king has made atonement for you. I hate that this is the case, but there are so many lies out there that try and convince you that you're still on some level facing the wrath of God and the judgment of God. That you're still wincing when you pray. Oh no. I told you about the bad theological setting I was raised in. Perpetually afraid that I'd fallen out of grace. If you are in Christ... God sees righteousness. And He relates to you accordingly. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Yes, we are fighting to rid ourselves of sin in our heart. Sorry, that's Siri. She's bothering me. We're fighting to rid ourselves of sin. We see in our hearts inclinations towards the world. And those things we will fight tooth and nail until the day of Christ. But when you bow before God, you do so confidently because you are wearing the righteous robes of Jesus. And He looks on you and He speaks to you and He relates to you as a righteous son or daughter. Remember that the true priest king has made atonement for you. It's not in our future, it's in our past. Amen. The other side of this coin. I thought about just making this one point, but you know I like to talk. The other side of this coin is that you should, right now, enjoy peace and fellowship with God. If it is so that God no longer relates to you as a sinner, but relates to you as a righteous son... And if it is so that in Him are all the things that you know will lead to your ultimate, permanent, forever joy, go be with Him. Go spend time with Him. Sit in His presence. Ask Him to draw near to you. 
we're so uh, pragmatic, we're so uh, results-oriented that very rarely do we think, I've got 20 minutes, I could watch the next episode on Netflix, or I can behold the presence of the all-beautiful God. Right? You have peace with Him. In Him, you have peace. Draw near, dwell, reflect on His goodness. I promise it's more satisfying than most of the things, all the things that you will do with your time. And finally, if we have a priest king who has resolved the wrath of God, and if we have a priest king who has promised to come again, look to his coming kingdom. Think about his coming kingdom. Reflect on his coming kingdom. Prepare for his coming kingdom. All the joy that could be had is there. And to the degree that you hope in the coming kingdom, you will have joy that won't be disrupted by a bad financial crisis. You will have joy that won't be disrupted by a bad, you know, tuft with a, a spouse, right? The joy that we have in hoping for the coming kingdom is forever joy. I'm not saying that you won't experience sorrow along the way as part of the wilderness. But what I am saying is to the degree that you look forward to that coming kingdom, those momentary, momentary sorrows will feel like nothing compared to the weight of glory that awaits us. Amen? All right. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.